Yes, Your Honor. S17G1333, the state versus Barry Craig Davis, Lindsay Rudder for appellant, Amy Erring for appellee. Ms. Rada, when you are ready. May it please the court. Good morning, Chief Justice, Your Honors. My name is Lindsay Rudder. I'm here on behalf of the Chatham County District Attorney's Office and the State of Georgia appellant in this case. Appellant respectfully requests that this court find that Georgia's sex offender registry codified at OCGA 42-1-12 is not a legal disability that has removed Appley Davis's <coughs> requirements to register as a sex offender. Appellant respectfully requests that this court reach such a conclusion by applying a de novo standard of review based on its grant of writ of certiorari and reversal of the Court of Appeals opinion, or in the alternative, by vacating the Court of Appeals opinion for lack of jurisdiction, as this court is vested under Article 6, Section 6, Chapter 2 of the Georgia Constitution with exclusive appellate jurisdiction of the interpretation of provisions of the Constitution. However, under either route, this court applying a de novo standard of review should find that the requirement to register is not a legal disability. And in doing so, should find that Appley's reasoning and the Court of Appeals analysis is fatally flawed. First and foremost, both overlook that the Georgia General Assembly's intent in creating the sex offender registry was first and foremost to protect the public, to instill a safety mechanism for each and every one of us. Mr. Rudder, good, good morning. Morning. Before, before we get to the merits of whether under the Constitution this constitutes a disability imposed by law, can you talk for briefly uh, for a moment about uh, jurisdiction and whether or not the Court of Appeals had jurisdiction to entertain this, this question in the first instance? and that is a question of the interpretation of whether the sex offender registry requirements are a legal disability under our Constitution, such that that issue should have been presented here instead of there. Can you address that issue? Yes, Your Honor. The Court of Appeals did not have jurisdiction to address this case because this is a constitutional question regarding a provision of the Constitution, specifically Article 4, Section 4, Paragraph 2, which gives powers to the Board of Pardon and Paroles, which are directly at question in this case. The Court of Appeals, um, based on Article 6, Section 6, Paragraph 2 of the Constitution, should have not heard the case and vested this court with exclusive appellate jurisdiction. You don't believe the Ferguson decision from this court in 2013 resolved that issue? No, Your Honor. The reasons are for the following purposes. One, the issue in that case, the primary issue, was whether or not restoration of a defendant's firearm rights uh, through a pardon were this were forbidden to be done based on a statutory method of removal. So the question was, could a statute um, be the sole method of removal or could a pardon also be the method? The, the issue was not whether the restoration of one's firearm rights was a legal disability. This court looked at uh, Mr. Perry's 
pardon in that case and found that regardless of his pardon, he was actually pardoned in 1979, a year before Georgia's ban on firearms and OCGA 1611-131 was even in place. So this court didn't have to directly address if that was a civil right or a legal disability. Now this court and all candidates- We did have to address that. We subdivided our decision into a division C after disposing of the statutory argument to address the argument that the phrase all civil and political rights used in the board's order applies to firearm rights. And in the course of that, we talked about the definition of a disability under the constitutional language, right? I respectfully no, Your Honor, because in the code section OCGA 1611-131, the General Assembly stated in that code section that removal of one's firearm rights was a legal disability. So this court didn't have to conclude it was already in the statute. Of course, this court uh, did. So the General Assembly gets to decide the meaning of the constitutional term? Certainly not, Your Honor, but this court referenced that and used that in its analysis. This court didn't in depth define <coughs> legal disability. It cited to the Oxford English Dictionary in a parenthetical, but did not go into great depth about what the definition of a legal disability was. So unless we go into great depth in construing a constitutional term, we haven't held what it means? What's your authority for that? Your Honor, the... Appellant's position is that the definition provided by the court in Ferguson versus Perry that it was an incapacity did not go a step further and define incapacity and give enough insight to be able to determine if the requirement to register is a legal disability. Could, the board, could the board of Pardons and Paroles in Ferguson have done the same thing that the Board of Pardons and Paroles did in this case, the Davis case, and that is accept out from the legal disabilities that are being removed the right to own and possess a firearm? You will remember in the Davis case, that was not re removed by virtue of the pardon, explicitly not removed by virtue of the language included in the pardon. There was no such limiting or expanding language in the Ferguson uh, pardon, is that correct? That's correct, and that's one of Appellant's arguments in its final part of its brief, is that even if the requirement to register is a legal disability, that the board certainly knew how to state expressly if it was or was not restoring such a unique right, and it declined to do so. In Ferguson versus Perry, this court noted that the court had a unique policy that had been put in place in 1980 of stating when unique rights, such as firearm rights, were reinstated. So when the board here I mean, doesn't that beg the question of whether sex offender registration is a legal disability? Because the board here said it was pardoning him of all legal, all disabilities, right? All means all, right? Yes, Your Honor. However, there was an exception. The court, or excuse me, the board went on to state that they were instating all except for the requirement right. that he so not when, bear arms. So when you say all, it means all. If you accept one, it means you accept that one. What in the English language, how does all except one mean that some other thing was accepted? Your Honor, it's based on the board's policy of stating when unique rights are restored. The customary rights that are restored by the board are laid out in the board's rules and regulations at 475, section 3, and then subsection point 10. Those rights are the typical rights that are restored based on legal disabilities. The right to serve as a notary, the right to serve and hold public office, and so forth. Included in those customary rights is not the restoration of one's firearm rights, or if the requirement to register as a legal disability it would certainly not be a unique right either. And therefore, the board has a policy of stating when those unique rights are restored. But certainly the key question before this court today is whether or not the requirement to register is a legal disability. And what is your position on that, Ms. Rudder? 
two cases. The only case that appellants been able to find that's directly on point is a court of appeals case out of Arizona in which they were reviewing the Arizona sex offender registry statutes, the exact reporting requirements that Pelly Davis has in this case. And they found that it was not a legal disability. They were not reviewing it as an ex post facto challenge, just directly on point as this court is here. They found that it was not a legal disability because it did not incapacitate, restrain, or remove any right from Appalee. Appalee, in this case, is a pre-2003 offender. Do Americans have a, a right not to register every year with the government where they live and when they're going to change address? Is that a right Americans and Georgians have? Certainly not, Your Honor. There's not a civil right that's been violated by that. Now, we do have— So the government, putting aside sex offender registration, the government could require every Georgian to register where they live and if they're changing their address. Your Honor, the Department of Driver Services does require us to do that if we want to maintain our driver's license. It's a misdemeanor if we this do not— This a driver's license requirement. This is just a, re a requirement on, on where you live. Can the government make you, for example, register where you live every year? No, Your Honor, but the 11th Circuit Court of Appeal, excuse me, the Georgia Court of Appeals in U.S. versus Groveston, as well as the 11th Circuit, First Circuit Court of Appeals in U.S. versus Robertson, found that the requirement to register is a civil regulatory measure like the requirement to hold a license, a selective service, or to receive Social Security benefits. It's similar in the fact that the main mechanism is to protect the public. It's a right that vests in the public. And how, how does so, that this, I'm sorry, go ahead. So to follow up on Justice Namius's question, what if the General Assembly decides in this really complex society, um, it would be a really good idea for law enforcement to be able to find anybody very quickly, and so we need to know where every person in this country is at all times. So there's a new requirement that you register within 24 hours of sleeping at a new address. Constitutional? It would certainly um, not be a legal disability because it does not restrain or incapacitate, and that's the definition. Appley was asked during the Court of Appeals opinion if she could provide any case that from any decision in any court that defined a legal disability as an affirmative obligation. None to this day has been provided. There is no definition that defines a legal disability as something that requires you to make an affirmative step. How, how is it not an incapacity if I cannot go somewhere for more than 20 <laughs> 24 hours without having told the government first. Because it's not restrain you or make you have to have permission to do so. You are free to move wherever you want. Mr. Davis is a pre-2003 offender, meaning that he has no house, work, or loitering restrictions. He only has affirmative requirements to register, and those are as follows. One, to update the sheriff and the county where he resides within 72 hours of being released from prison. And why that may be burdensome, it is certainly not a legal disability. It takes no right or privilege away from him. But it requires him to do something that but for the conviction he would not be required to do. And so the struggle, of course, is when the Board of Pardons and Paroles says it removes all legal disabilities, you're parsing out that a legal disability is not something uh, unless it requires you to do something affirmatively that you would not otherwise be required to do. Is that what Yes, Your Honor, because a pardon does not erase history. A pardon does not expunge a conviction. Mr. Davis remains an active sex offender to this day. He has a sex offense on his criminal history. It, it removes all legal disabilities. So my understanding, especially after Ferguson, is anything that you could have done without your conviction, 
you are allowed now to do again. Without his conviction, would there be any requirement to register? Certainly not. He would not be an, a sex offender. However, I will note that in U.S. versus Robinson, a First Circuit Court of Appeals case in which they were reviewing the SORNA sex offender statute and the requirement to register, they found that even if a conviction is set aside or vacated, it's the historical act of the conviction that requires one to register. And in reviewing— That, that was interpreting what SORNA requires. I mean, under Georgia law— I mean, and, and maybe your regulatory argument could say, even if you haven't been convicted of a crime, we could set up some system to protect the public from sex offenders who haven't been convicted, but that's not what we have in Georgia. Mr. Davis's sole requirement to register was due to his conviction, right? Yes, Your Honor. However, because it's not a legal disability, it does not remove him from the requirement to register. And the reason is because no right was taken away. Do I have a right to travel established under the common law, under federal constitutional law, as a privilege and immunity under the federal and state constitutions? Is there a right to travel freely? Yes, Your Honor. However, Appley Davis's right to travel is not restricted. He is free to travel anywhere he wants. He, no, only he is not free to travel because before he can travel, he has to go to a government office and register, right? That's subject to being incarcerated as a felon. He does not have to go to the office. That can be a, uh, is not a live in-person requirement that he update. He can do it by phone call or in writing. He does not have to go in person. But in the 11th Circuit case of Doe versus Moore reviewing the Florida sex offender statute, they looked at that exact issue. And they said the requirement to report that you were moving locations or moving places of employment does not beg the question that you have to get permission first. You're allowed to do it. You just have to update and that update although burdensome, does not interfere with one's right to travel. Was and that Florida case in the context of a parole that by its explicit terms removed all legal disabilities and accepted out one that is safe, you're not allowed to own a firearm? Was it in that same context? No, Your Honor, it was not, but they were looking at the sole issue of whether or not the uh, reporting requirements in Florida, which are similar to the ones in Georgia, which require you to update the sheriff in the county where you're going to be traveling or taking employment within 72 hours. It's the exact same requirement here. So and you, you would agree that there are collateral consequences to a felony conviction. There are collateral consequences to a felony conviction, housing, jobs, records, right? There are collateral convictions. They all don't rise necessarily to the level of a legal disability, you would agree? Certainly, but not in Mr. Davis's case. He has no house or work or loitering restrictions. He only has the affirmative requirements to report. And important- The fact that you refer to it as an affirmative requirement, is that some line of, of demarcation that we should use to determine what is a legal disability and what is not? That is, if you impose on an individual by virtue of a conviction an affirmative obligation to do something or not to do something, versus just a natural collateral consequence of a conviction. Would that be a good place to, to define what is a legal disability under the Board of Pardons and Paroles rules and what is not? Absolutely, Your Honor. The court has to look at the common definition of legal disability. Every court um, across all the federal circuits, even in the United States Supreme Court, have defined it as a legal disability that incapacitates, <coughs> restrains, or takes some privilege or right away, which is the definition that the Court of Appeals applied as well. Again, nothing has been taken away. He has only affirmative obligations, and there is no case that appellant has found that states that an affirmative obligation rises to a legal disability. And seeing that I only have five minutes left, if there are no further questions at this time, I will reserve my remainder for a rebuttal. May do so, Ms. Rada. Thank you. 
Rosari for the appellee. Thank you. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice, members of the court. May it please the court. Um, I'm Amy Erig. I'm honored to be here today representing the appellee, Mr. Barry Davis, and his interest in this matter. Um, I want to begin by just indicating that the two questions before this court today can be easily and succinctly answered by this court's precedent in the case of Ferguson versus Perry, a 2013 uh, decision from this court. Do you then think the Court of Appeals had jurisdiction to entertain the question of whether this is a legal disability pursuant to the language used in Ferguson? I do, and that is specific, yep. specifically based on the fact that within the context of Ferguson versus Perry, this court had to construe the term disability within the context of the authority and power of the Board of Pardons and Paroles. Only in the context of whether or not uh, Mr. Perry, as formerly been convicted in 1971 of moonshining, was allowed to apply for a weapons carry license. It didn't, there was no, no, no construing of whether or not sex offender registry under the pertinent statute was a legal disability. You would agree with that? Yes. However, the um, constitutional question jurisdiction lies with this court when, uh, for the first time, a term uh, is either construed from a clause of the Constitution or defined from a clause of the Constitution. At issue within this case is a um, clause of our state's constitution that was defined and construed by this court in Ferguson versus Perry. And so that's why constitutional question jurisdiction doesn't operate here is because this court already spoke on what disability means. It defined that term by its plain and ordinary um, definition and looking to the new shorter Oxford dictionary definition and defined it as inter alia or among other things, an incapacity in the eye of the law. And so with that definition, having already been um, outlined by this court uh, from Ferguson versus Perry, that's why we don't need to look to this court um, here. Although it is an issue of first impression, whether registration as a sex offender is a disability under the law, this court has already spoken about what it means to be a disability. That's why the, Mr. yes. Mr. Then are you saying that your best authority on that is the uh, Ferguson case? Yes, Your Honor, um, because it speaks directly to what that think, term you, means. You think it is controlling as to the issue? Yes, Your Honor. Would, um, a, would a criminal history that is not sealed, that reflects a pardon, but likewise reflects the former conviction, the sex offender conviction in this case, such that a defendant is now required to explain that conviction every time they apply for a job. Would that be a legal disability such that it could or could not be removed by the pardon? I'm, I don't know if I heard the entire question, but I believe so. I believe that it is a disability because it is something that... You refer to legal disability as, as an incapacitation. And yes. You refer to the dictionary definition of legal disability, and you say Ferguson stands for the proposition that even though we were speaking about gun rights and the right to obtain a weapon as a former convicted but pardoned uh, felon, that that somehow can be used to interpret what we would mean on a case of first impression in deciding whether sex offender registry is, is an incapacitation. What is it about re re registering under the Sex Offender Registry Act that, is an, that poses an incapacitation on Mr. Davis? 
specifically when we look to 42-1-12 and we see what requirements exist for a registrant, that answers that question. A registrant is required and uh, the statute does require mandatory in-person registration for life. The statute requires mandatory updates of one's personal information within 72 hours of a change, and it has specific categories Those of information. Those are obligations that he has pursuant to the statute. That's not the same as Mr. Perry not being able to get a license. He was incapacitated. He was not permitted to get a weapons permit because of his conviction. How is Mr. Davis, he's obviously required to do things, but is that the same as inca incapacitating Mr. Davis? It is because there's a specific provision uh, within the context of our sex offender registration statute that requires uh, notice to the government 72 hours prior to a move, prior to an address change. <clears throat> so I would suggest to uh, your honor that specifically that provision is unlike any of the other regis um, registration requirements as well, because he's unable to move prior to registering that with the government. He is incapable of changing his residence without prior approval from the government. And he faces criminal penalty if he in fact does that. Does so the sex offender statute require that the sheriff approve it or just that he report it to the sheriff within 72 hours of his intended move? It depends on the registrant. Some registrants have to have it approved. Um, if they How have- about this one in Chatham County? Uh, Mr. Um, Mr. Davis does not, yes. He does not have the registration restrictions that prohibit the um, different places that he can So he wasn't live. prohibited from moving to North Carolina. He was just required to notify the sheriff in Chatham County within 72 hours of his intended move. He didn't have to wait to get permission. If it is a change of registration, it is not 72 hours within. It is 72 hours Before. prior. He is prohibited from moving prior to making that change. Can he and do that remotely? No. Our statute 42-1-12 requires in-person mandatory registration for life. Right, registration, but the 72-hour notice of changes, that also has to be in-person? Um, I don't think that the statute explicitly outlines that. And so there could be an occasion where a county um, might set up some other means to do that. But within the context of Chatham County, the practice is, and I would, I would venture to say that this is the practice across the state, that it is a requirement that it be in person. Um, in litigating cases related with um, registration violations, uh, the individual has to come to the government, uh, give the information, have their picture taken, get their fingerprints taken. And I think that by virtue of the fact that the requirements of our statute require things as a picture, require things as fingerprints on an annual basis that there's no way for it to not be in person. Is the pertinent, is the pertinent code section that has been imposed on Mr. <coughs> Mr. Davis, 42.112.F.5, is that the pertinent <coughs> section? I believe so. I don't see the word before. It says, update the required registration information with the sheriff of the county in which the sex offender resides within 72 hours of any change to the required registration information. There's a later clause that says specifically if it is the address, then it is done prior. And so that you're, you're correct that um, for most of the registration requirements, it is something that can be done after the fact. Specifically with one's residence, it is something that has to be done prior to any change. Would he um, also be required to notify the sheriff of the county in which he's moving to in North Carolina under their pertinent statute or maybe under an interstate compact or otherwise? 
Potentially, yes. Um, a lot of states carry um, similar sex offender registration statutes, and so yes, he would have to register both here prior to the change, and depending on that state's um, registration requirements, register there as well within Your the time frame. Is this meets the definition in Ferguson of incapacity because it incapacitates him from moving until he until he informs the sheriff in Chatham County. Is that your point? That is a succinct version of the argument, yes. The reality is um, Mr. Davis cannot, um, cannot make decisions that other individuals get to make in their life because of his conviction, and it's solely because of his conviction. And when we look to the question of whether this is a disability, I think it is incumbent upon the court to recognize um, what it has already recognized in uh, several cases, or this court and the uh, Court of Appeals, that our sex offender registration statute enmeshes registration with conviction. And so that is why in particularly here, it is a disability. It is intimately related with the conviction. So when a pardon <coughs> operates over that conviction, that is why the pardon can remove this restriction, this disability under the law. We've said it's not punitive, but it, it's a disability would be your position, right? Correct. Um, <coughs> there's, and I'll speak to that, um, uh, the punitive or non-punitive nature of this statute. Um, there's quite a bit of case law developed uh, related with the sex offender registries across the country, specifically ours as well, um, indicating that it is not an ex post, ex post facto violation of the law. It is something that is not punitive in nature. And it is from there that the appellant has uh, taken language to suggest to this court that sex offender registration is not a disability. But that is a different context. That is a term of art, so to speak, of a particular constitutional test to determine whether something is punitive in nature. So when, in those cases, the courts describe uh, some registration as not being an affirmative disability, it is within the context of comparing it to uh, whether it is punitive and whether it is in fact then a criminal uh, penalty. And so that is a completely different um, scenario that cannot be pushed into what this court is deciding here. And I think you can look straight to Ferguson versus Perry uh, to see how this court defined disability within the context Although of- in Ferguson, it was an obvious incapacitation. You had a constitutional right to bear arms, which was eliminated. Here you have a little bit more trouble defining your constitutional right to start with. What, what is the constitutional or the legal right you have that has been eliminated as precisely as you can state it? Uh, two answers to that. First, it does not have to be a right in order for it to be a disability, which the, uh, a right that is affected that, um, in order for it to be a disability that the pardon removes. Um, that is not something that has been used by this court um, and acknowledged by this court to require it to be a disability. Well, the only case we had was Ferguson, it was, and there's a lot of discussion in Ferguson about how the right to have firearms is a constitutional right. And what happened is that this court uh, looked specifically to the fact that although over time, 
that had become a constitutional right. What it, had become a constitutional right? The right to bear arms? Yes, it was recognized um, uh, over um, time, but it was still a disability. It, that rec this court recognized it in, I think, 1865 or 45, 48, within three years of our court's creation. I'm specifically speaking to the um, Heller case and progeny after that, and this court recognizing that. And so within Ferguson, uh, the court held that it was both a right, but separate, and apart from that, it was a disability. And it didn't matter that uh, it wasn't considering the fact so, only so and solely. So it doesn't have to be based on a right, a legal right? You can have a disability. It's a le the statute, uh, it's a disability imposed by law. Is that any disability, even if it doesn't affect your legal or constitutional rights? Um, within the context of this case, no. There are some disabilities that would not be affected. However, if you look to this court's dis um, definition of disability in Ferguson, you uh, we understand that it is an incapacity under the law, and here. But does it have to incapacitate you from something that you that you had a legal right to do in the first place? Yes. Or. Um, so what is the legal right that Mr. Davis has lost? To live freely without the government monitoring him. Okay, to live, that, that's a to, very broad legal right. I mean. Mm -hmm. I've got a bazillion, everyone in this courtroom has a bazillion things we don't have the complete right to do. To travel freely without the government monitoring him and approving it prior to that travel. To change his residence without the government telling him that he can or cannot do that. And what's the best case you have that says you, you, the government can impose reasonable restrictions on your right to travel? Do you have a passport? <clears throat> I have to get a passport to enter and leave the country. But the difference here is this is a compulsory requirement. The passport requirement if I want to enter, if I want to leave the United States and get back, I better get a passport. But you're electing to do that whereas here Mr. Davis is required as a mandatory um, as a mandatory re requirement from his conviction that he would have to register based on the registration well, only statute. Only if he elects to leave his jurisdiction, right? And just to be clear, there's no prior approval required for him to move, is there? It's just registration. You just, need, just needs to inform, is that correct? Well, for Mr. Davis uh, in particular, he does not have a, a, excuse me, a residence restriction that says he can or cannot live in certain areas. Looking to the registry as a whole, some people do have that restriction, and therefore they do have to get prior approval. But specifically within the context of 42-1-12, R sex offender registration statute, particularly with residents, that is something that has to be registered. That is something that has to be told to the government prior to that change. Now, you mentioned that um, whether something is punitive is a term of art. Mm -hmm. Historically, or at least in the past, whether uh, something is a disability has been a term of art, and pardons parole has had their definition, it's been ratified or at least embraced by the Attorney General. Some of that may have changed after Ferguson. What is your cleanest test to help us define what is a disability under the Constitution? 
I would point back to the definition provided in Ferguson versus Perry um, at, that it is a plain, a term that is used for its plain and ordinary meaning is an incapacity under the law. Um, other, another way to say it would be an incapacity created by law. Um, the Court of Appeals using similar definitions. I guess where I need mm -hmm. help is surely there's some limitations to what is an incapacity under the law and what is not. Any and all incapacities under a law would not be something within the reach of pardons parole. Help us to fig figure out where that line is. It's because here the um, registration requirement is intimately related. It is paired with the conviction. That is why the pardon operates um, to remove that disability. So if it's tied to the conviction, then you would say it, it's an incapacity under a law, therefore it would be a disability. Yes, here that's um, what distinguishes, and it, Mr. Um, reg sex offender registration, and also the fact that it is mandatory. It is something that he is required to do because of the restriction. Criminal records are required to be reported to the GCIC. Mm -hmm. As a result of a pardon, those records are still available for at least law enforcement and the courts, correct? Yes. To the extent that a prospective employer could see that record, pardoned nonetheless, but still see that record. Does that rise to it, and it prevents him from getting a job? Does that rise to the level of an incapacity <clears throat> such under Ferguson, such that a pardon um, would reach to that level, that is criminal records? No, I don't believe so. That would be a collateral consequence um, that isn't necessarily um, touched by or determined by the language of this pardon. It prevents, um, it prevents him, the, the access to that criminal record that is mandated by law prevents him from getting a job. Well, that, that, would, be, that would be a practical incapacity. If it works a incapacity, that would be a practical incapacity and not a legal incapacity unless there were some statute saying no employer shall hire anybody with a criminal history, right? I think that's correct. And specifically, when we look here, the sex offender registration statute provides legal incapacities for Mr. Davis in a different way than what you've just described. If we agreed that in this case, this is a legal disability such that a pardon of all legal disabilities reaches this, right? Would you agree that the broad powers of the Board of Pardons and Paroles is sufficient that they could have accepted the registration requirements just as they did with respect to firearms ownership? Position. Certainly. And I would suggest that the, the way in which they would do that would be similar to in Mr. Davis's pardon, the way they accepted firearm rights, they would have also accepted this. And that would be the way that the Board of Pardons and Paroles indicates um, whether something does not fall under uh, what it is removing. <coughs> when you look at the sweeping language within Mr. Davis's pardon, that it removes all disabilities under the law, that that speaks directly to the heart of this case, whether sex offender registration is a disability has been defined by this court, or excuse me, the term disability has already been defined by this court. Applying that, the Court of Appeals determined that sex offender registration is a disability, and because the language in Mr. Davis's pardon removes all disabilities, and all does mean all, without any exception within the language of the pardon itself, um, the, his requirement to register has been removed uh, by that pardon. So if you have a state law that says a convicted felon may not serve as a law enforcement officer, the pardon can remove that, but 
if you just if if there's no state law that says that, but a police a local police department says we're just not going to hire this person because they had a felony, even though it may have been pardoned, the board of pardon and paroles can't do anything about that. Is that right? That's correct. The the okay. the board is not involved in that decision making process, and so the board would not have any effect on that. Um, I see that my time is slowly coming to a close. And so if there are no further questions from the court, um, I will conclude and just indicate that this court should, based on its own precedent from Ferguson versus Perry, affirm the Court of Appeals in deciding that uh, sex offender registration is a disability under the law. And therefore, Mr. Davis's requirement to register um, has been removed. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Diverick. Ms. Rutter uh, in uh, rebuttal. Yes, Your Honor, thank you. <coughs> Justice Nami, as you indicated on Appley's argument that there is no civil right or anything in the Bill of Rights that states that we are all to be free from the requirement to register on the sex offender statutes in Georgia. There is no such civil right. If Appellee Davis's pardon is to have removed him from the requirement to register, it would have to be a legal disability. And Justice Hines, you asked Appley for her best definition, and she indicated that it would be the degree of enmeshment, and I think Justice Melton asked that as well, how and what the fact that it was compulsory, how tightly connected it was to the conviction. There's no court that has made that the test. There is nothing that says that the degree of enmeshment determines the relevance of whether or not an effect of a conviction what is a legal is your, disability. What's your test? Is it a constitutional right? What's the test? Uh, no, because I don't think there is a constitutional right to be free from the requirement to register. Uh, to determine, test for dis disability? It's using precedent from um, even the Court of Appeals in U.S. versus Gravison when they said it's whether or not it's a civil regulatory measure. And then looking at the federal <coughs> courts that have defined it as a legal disability that restrains or removes some right previously granted. The only right previously granted in this case was the right to each and every one of us to be free from the harms of a sex offender. Uh, we, are, we have a, a constitutional right to travel, according to the U.S. Supreme Court. I don't know if this court's done it, but and the common law, it's actually one of the few things that has been said to be within the privileges and immunities of, of citizenship. So how is this not a restriction created by solely by law, um, solely by the conviction on your right to travel? Because Appley Davis is absolutely free to travel wherever he pleases, laid out in OCJ 42-1-12 in sections B through F. That's like saying I have a right to kill somebody, but, you know, I might suffer some consequences if I do it. It, Your Honor, it's not that severe. It's similar to what you indicated on Appley's uh, argument that it's similar to having to get a passport. It's similar to have a license. You have to take steps to be able to do it, but you're not restrained from doing it. Th those steps, though, are not tied to your conviction and solely to your conviction. The passport requirement applies to all citizens. The, the driver's license requirement applies to all citizens. But this requirement only applies if you've been convicted of a crime. Can you point to other places where people have to similarly register even though they're not convicted? Register before they travel or at, within 72 hours of travel? No, Your Honor. Most of the sex offender statutes are similar in the fact that they require— No, no, no not sex offender. Other, putting aside things tied to convictions where other Americans, other Georgians are required to register before they go to North Carolina. 
No, Your Honor, there are mechanisms in place that require people after they've moved to make steps to receive something. For example, a license, you have to update that within 30 days of moving. But again, he's not restrained from doing it. And that's why in Doe versus Moore, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals found it absolutely did not violate the right to travel. And the Court of Appeals opinion, they cite to Kent versus Dulles, a case involving an individual who was a communist who was trying to get a passport. They found um, that that did violate his right to travel if he was forbidden to get a passport. But they interestingly said that could be restricted based on public safety needs. In Holloway versus Holloway, this court stated in 1906 that rights that vest to third parties as a result of someone's conviction are not removed when a pardon is received. The rights that we each received upon Mr. Davis being convicted were the right to be safe from the high recidivism rates of sex offenders. That was the number one purpose for the sex offender statute going into place, to protect the public. Those are rights that have vested in us that shouldn't be removed based on him receiving a pardon. You keep analogizing to uh, somebody leaving the country and the passport requirement to, to reenter the country. Um, do you think there would be any constitutional uh, problems with the state of Georgia setting up checkpoints at every border crossing with Tennessee and checking the papers, please, when anybody wants to cross from Tennessee into Georgia. You think there'd be any constitutional problems with that? Possibly, but that's not an issue here. and That's not part of the record. He was free to move. He just had to update within 72 hours that he did that. And he actually didn't have to update Georgia. He had to update North Carolina Sheriff's Department that he had moved. And uh, again, he wasn't restrained from doing so. It's not like when you're on probation, you have a requirement to seek permission to do something and you can have someone actively um, follow up with you, for example, setting those checkpoints. He is free to move as he pleases. Uh, based on that, the court uh, should reverse the Court of Appeals or, again, applying um, their own jurisdiction, find that the requirement to register is not a legal disability. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Rudder, and thank you, Ms. Erie. Well argued. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we appreciate your appearance here today. Uh, please be safe uh, as you go back to your offices and your homes. Uh, uh, as you could see, Justice uh, Hunstein was not with us this morning, but she will fully participate in the case. We'll have a, as, as will all cases, as she's uh, argued today, and she will have certainly uh, the uh, videos of these arguments as a part of it. So with that.